Welcome to episode number 62 on the My Story Podcast. The My Story Podcast features interviews with leaders, influencers, and entrepreneurs, interesting people who tell their stories and the life lessons they've learned along the way. My goal is to inspire you to live a life of meaning and purpose. Hi, my name's Conrad Weaver. I'm a documentary filmmaker, storyteller, entrepreneur, and the host of the My Story Podcast, and I'm so glad you've stopped by to listen to the show today. Max Armstrong is one of the most widely recognized and highly regarded agriculture journalists in America. His broadcasts have been seen and heard by millions of farmers, ranchers, and consumers for more than 30 years. As director of broadcasting for Farm Progress Companies, the largest agricultural media company in America, Max is responsible for the daily radio programming and the television specials produced by Farm Progress. He is also co-host of This Week in Agribusiness, one of the most popular shows on RFD TV rural programming channel, and Max continues co-hosting on Saturdays, a weekly hour-long agriculture program on Chicago broadcast powerhouse WGN Radio, where he has been heard every week for over 30 years. I had the privilege of meeting Max a few years ago while I was working on the Great American Wheat Harvest documentary. I was interviewed by him for for a few of his programs about my film, and today I'm turning the tables and interviewing him for the My Story podcast, so stay tuned. Hey, if you enjoy this show and get something out of it, please do a couple of things for me. First, please subscribe and then leave a review. This really helps me know who's listening and that you enjoy what you hear. And you'll help more people discover the show and perhaps they'll discover their purpose through the stories they hear. Thanks for being a part of this community of listeners. I'm so grateful for your faithful support. And now here's my interview with Max Armstrong. Well, Max Armstrong, welcome to the My Story Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today. Conrad, it's an honor to be on with you, sir. I appreciate it. I've admired your work uh, from afar and on many different instances and uh, really, really appreciate the talent and uh, the artistry you bring to it. Well, thanks so much. I've uh, been a you know, huge fan of yours as well. You you have been in broadcasting and and producing all kinds of shows around you know along the years for a long time, and so specifically in the agriculture world. And so I really have enjoyed uh, watching your your uh, shows and your progress along the years. So, how did you get your start? Where did where do you come from? Where did you grow up? And what's some of the background that you have? Well, I am doing exactly what I dreamt of doing as a kid in grade school. I wanted to be on the radio. I grew up on a farm about midway between St. Louis, Missouri and Louisville, Kentucky, near Evansville, Indiana. A small, diversified farm as they all were back in the day. Grain, livestock. We had some chickens, uh, hogs and cattle, and uh, corn, soybeans, and wheat. And my mom and dad were sharecropping farmers. My dad farmed with a great uncle. Uh, I'm, I'm the son of a son of the Depression, and uh, so I've, I've learned to uh, live frugally over the years. I came by that naturally because of my father. But I would listen to the faraway radio stations. I would listen to the stations out of 
Chicago and St. Louis and Atlanta and Detroit. And I dreamt of being on the radio someday. At the age of seven or eight, I would sit in the closet in that old farmhouse and play radio and television. I would pick up the Evansville, Indiana newspaper and practice reading that front page while playing to the camera. And I, I knew what I wanted to do. And I was so lucky that uh, a couple of years after getting out of college, after working for the Illinois Farm Bureau for about two years, I went to Chicago to work for WGN Radio and Television, uh, fulfilling that dream as a kid on the farm. So you left the family farm and and your homestead and went to the big city. <laughs> yeah, our father, I have an older brother, six years older than I, and our dad never really encouraged us, never shoved us, I should say, to stay on the farm. He said there are many ways to make a living. There are many things that you can do that will not be as arduous and as challenging from an economical standpoint as the business of farming. He was always working a second job to support farming. We worked on roofs in town, repairing leaky roofs. And uh, that allowed uh, mom and dad to support their income and to send a couple of boys to Purdue University. And I, I was a broadcasting major, but I never worked at the Purdue radio station. I worked at a commercial station in Lafayette, Indiana, all the time I was there. Same station where Brian Lamb, the founder of C-SPAN, worked uh, when he was in high school and a lot of other guys went through. It was a very, very good media market radio station, a commercial station, and uh, it was a great proving ground. I got to chase fire trucks and ambulances enough to, to know that I really didn't want to do that for a living, <laughs> even though I wanted to be in broadcasting. Yeah. So speaking of fire trucks and ambulances, you you also, and this may be kind of a side note, but you also had some have some experience as a volunteer firefighter and or, or worked in the fire service over the years. Tell me a little bit about that. My experience as a volunteer was very short-lived, I must say. I was living in Bloomington, Illinois, working for the Illinois Farm Bureau, and I lived actually out in a little town near Bloomington, Tawanda, and I joined the Tawanda Volunteer Fire Department. Well, I had been there only four months when I had the opportunity to go to WGN in Chicago, so that was my limited actual service. But then a few years after I was in Chicago, living in the western suburbs, I saw where a fire district serving several communities in the western suburbs, was looking for a member of the Board of Fire Commissioners. No experience necessary. So I reached out to the chief, and uh, he was listening to me on the radio every day on WGN, and he said, wait a minute, I, th I think we need you here. So it was a, a great opportunity back in the early 90s to start serving on the Board of Commissioners of the Lyle Woodridge Fire Protection District, Serving parts of, uh, well, Lyle and Woodridge, Naperville, Downers Grove, a little bit of Glen Ellen as well in that area, about 25 miles west of downtown Chicago. A uh, department, uh, an agency that is ISO 1. Uh, it has been for many, many years. It's just a, a great tax base, the locations of the station, superb training program, a lot of excellent people. It's one of the most satisfying things that I did as an adult, those 22 years I served there as a commissioner, helping hire and promote firefighters and paramedics. Hmm. Well, you and I could talk about firefighting you know, all day, but we're here to talk about you and your story. So what was your first kind of foray into agriculture broadcasting? Well, the first foray was when I was getting ready to graduate from Purdue. I, I hadn't dreamt of being a farm broadcaster. I had dreamt of being a newscaster. And then I was uh, back in those days, you, you looked for job openings by going to the library, the placement center, and there was a big spiral binder there that had all kinds of job applications uh, in it and uh, job openings. And I saw this uh, position with the Illinois Farm Bureau at Bloomington, Illinois. And I, they were looking for a, 
a guy that had some ag experience, wanted to be in radio, $12,000 a year plus a company car. I thought, all right, let me apply for this. And so it worked out and I was privileged to join that group. A great organization. Uh, we had some fantastic leadership there. Leadership that allowed people like myself right out of college to grow, to do some things on your own. And uh, while doing that, I got noticed a little bit, I guess, in some of the major markets and then had the chance to go to Chicago. Mm -hmm. And so to kind of describe for the audience that doesn't know you, uh, to kind of describe for you, for us, your career path. It was fairly short, to be honest with you. Um, as, as I say, right out of college, I went to the Illinois Farm Bureau, was there two and a half years, went to WGN Radio and Television in Chicago, did a little bit of television there. Uh, I, I would say the t TV weatherman of last resort for about <laughs> eight years, maybe eight to 10 nights a year, I would come in and fill in for the full-time meteorologist, one of whom is still there, very prominent, Tom Skilling, highly regarded, long-time meteorologist. And I would fill in for Tommy when he was first getting into the uh, computer graphics. And when, we, when I started doing this, filling in for him, there was an artist who drew the map on the plexiglass on the wall behind no you. kidding. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, it was just, that was a fun sideline. The real job was doing farm programming on WGN Radio in Chicago, and WGN-TV early in the morning. WGN Radio back in those days had huge ratings. In, in 1977, when I went to work there, you had to put together the second and third rated stations in the morning to come up with WGN's numbers. Uh, you had to put together WBBM and WLS both. And actually, you still didn't reach the number that the morning man had at WGN. Wally Phillips had a huge following. And all across the board, all across the schedule, it was an excellent lineup. And uh, during the noon hour and all through the day, my uh, longtime colleague and I, Orion Samuelson, were doing agriculture reports. We had a, a full hour at noon. Mm -hmm. And that wide expanse of the WGN signal, that clear channel 50,000 watt signal, put us on a lot of farms uh, in the tractor radios and combine radios and farm homes back in those days. It was the most listened to farm station in the United States back in that era. Hmm. And then you, you moved into television as well from there. Yeah. We were doing, in those days, the U.S. Farm Report television show. And uh, it was started there at Tribune Company. Uh, and, and you might find this interesting, Conrad. Tribune Entertainment was a, was a unit of WGN. Actually, let me just back up a little bit. Tribune Company was a big, massive media company. Owner of the Chicago Tribune, the Baltimore Sun, the Orlando Sentinel, eventually the LA Times, and there were a whole bunch of television stations, including WGN, KWGN in Denver, KTLA in Los Angeles, WPIX in New York City. But there was a unit that produced television shows called Tribune Entertainment. One of those shows was, um, well, Geraldo. One of those shows was Soul Train with Don Cornelius. One of those was at the movies with Ebert and Siskel back in those days. Mm -hmm. And then there was the Joan Rivers show and mm -hmm. U.S. Farm Report. So there was, there was actually a Christmas when there was a party held on Michigan Avenue in Chicago where you had all of those parties in attendance. Wow. And uh, Max Armstrong partying with Don Cornelius and Geraldo and Joan Rivers was a little bit strange. That's got to be epic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was in the era when Geraldo went to Al Capone's vault. I don't know if I you remember, remember that. that show. Yeah, I remember that. And he opened it up and there was like nothing there. There right? was nothing. There was nothing. It was a terribly undersold show. 
it had a huge audience mm-hmm. and I had so nowhere near the spot rate that they should have for that show. Yeah. What's been your favorite thing that you've done, uh, you know, across your broadcasting career? Uh, it's without a doubt being out on farms. I, I love being on farms and riding in the combine cab, riding in the tractor cab. Uh, it's just a special time and you really come to appreciate what those men and women have built in their farming enterprises through a lot of hard work and angst, uh, difficult markets at times, droughts, floods, you know, the story so well because you've covered it so well in uh, the wonderful documentaries that you have done. But being with those people and, and, and being able to say that I know a farmer, I can point to the map. And in so many areas of the United States, I'm not far from a farmer that I know or a farm that I have, have visited or someone I have interviewed. And there's there's something pretty neat about that. But to be able to do agriculture programming in a big city of America has been special, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's just something pretty neat about explaining aspects of agriculture mm-hmm. on radio and television. And I still get to. And I still have people recognize my voice, whether mm-hmm. it's at a Walgreens or uh, you know, I, I walked into a, a local restaurant a couple of weeks ago when I was headed to Midway Airport in Chicago, and there was a grain trader sitting there who had spent 40 years in the pits at the Chicago mm-hmm. Board of Trade, wow. 40, 40 years, elbow to elbow, mm-hmm. chest to chest, face to face, looking in the eyes of that trader, yelling at the top of your lungs, and uh, Dan had, had had a very successful year of trading. So we got to sit there and for a minute or two. Uh, having a bowl of soup and adult beverage, talking about the old days and talking about yet one more weather market. He traded some back in the day, back in 1983 and 88 and 2012. And here's another one this summer. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, you have one of the most iconic voices in, in, in radio and agriculture broadcasting for sure. And I have to say, you're probably the most iconic voice I've ever had on my podcast. So, uh, <laughs> That, that means it's raspy. It's a little bit raspy. That's what it is. You know what? I, I, I got to do a very fun project uh, during the Winter Olympics of 1994 because I was horse. Hmm. I, I, I was horse all that winter. I'd you gone, weren't a horse, but you were horse. No, H-O-H-O-A-R-S-E. <laughs> the bulls were three-peating in the old Chicago Stadium. And to hmm. be heard by the person sitting next to you, you had to just scream at the top of your lungs. And when mm-hmm. I did that, I damaged a vocal cord. Wow. So uh, I, went, I went to the autolaryngologist there in the western suburbs, a guy who eventually worked on Paul Harvey in the last okay. few years of Paul's life, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Robert Bastian. And he stuck the camera down my throat and he said, eh, you know, I can fix this. <laughs> you know, the bad news is you'll have to be off the air for three weeks. I said, oh, doc, that's good news. That's good news. Good news. I'll, I'll take that anytime. You know, you, you, when you, you have this instrument that you rely so heavily upon, you, you conjure up the, the worst case scenario in your mind when you're hoarse one month after another and you think, this isn't quite right. It's this cancerous. Sure. And I, I felt so blessed to be healed by Dr. Bastian, and so did many other people, including, I think he had looked at grain traders and uh, singers and actors, and, and yes, even helped uh, the late Paul Harvey. So what, I mean, how did you curate that voice? I mean, what was that, something that you learned back in college and or, or just in your years of, of being in a broadcasting booth? I'm still working on it. Came out? Still working <laughs> on it, Conrad. I, uh, you know, one thing that I never did much as a younger man, and I, I really encourage young people now who, who do podcasts without the video element and who do radio, make sure you have a smile. 
while you're doing mm-hmm. it. Believe it or not, it comes across. And, and I think a lot of people are doubtful when they hear me say that. But in reality, you can I, I can tell the difference. For example, when I'm, when I'm real serious and handling a piece of copy, doggone it, when I listen to the playback, I sound mad. But if there's a, a little bit of a smile as I'm delivering the copy, that smile comes across. Of course, it you know it needs to be appropriate to whatever the copy might be. But but in that instance, sure. when I was hoarse, I sounded so bad, I thought, on the radio every day. And in, in January of that year, I got a call from a commercial producer. And he said, I want you to do a spot. We've got a Ford pickup truck spot that's going to run in the Winter Olympics. And I want you to be the voice. And I said, man, I'm sorry. I, 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 I've never sounded worse in my life. I, I'm a horse. I've got to have vocal cord surgery. He said, yeah, I know. I hear you every morning. It's exactly the voice I want <laughs> on this spot. And, you know, in those days, you know, maybe you've heard people talk about this, Conrad. Voiceover people had to go through a cattle call. You right. had to go to a production studio. In this sure. case, there were several of them up and down Michigan Avenue in Chicago. But you had to go in there and stand in line with the other voiceover artists, some of them with tremendous voices, who mm-hmm. really made a handsome living doing this. And I, I told him, man, I'm, here, I'm on the hour of markets here doing it all day long on the radio. I can't go down and stand in line. He said, no, no, no. He says, I know I want you. Go to the regular building, fourth floor. There's a studio. They're waiting for you. It's a seven-minute walk. You'll be back in, in 20 minutes. And I did. And that ran the night that Harding and Kerrigan skating in wow. the, the Winter Olympics. Yeah. To that point, it was the most watched Wednesday night in television history. Wow. And you were a part of it. And my voice, my voice had never been worse, Conrad. <laughs> this guy said, "That's what I wanted." This it was a bad to the bone spot. They called it. Uh, okay. George Thorogood had the uh, the soundtrack on that. <laughs> Very good. So, wh- so what motivates you to do what you do? Mm. I just have really enjoyed uh, talking to farmers and talking about farmers and being with them. Just to circle back to what I was saying earlier, that mm. that opportunity to be with farmers. We'll be at the Farm Progress Show. That's coming up the end of August. It's three days. And the weekend before that, we'll be at the biggest vintage farm equipment show in America, which I helped start in 2003. And it's only held every other year. That one is when the Farm Progress Show is in Illinois, one hour away. And I will, if it's like the show in 2019, I'll meet people from more than 30 states and from other countries will come there. And to the Farm Progress Show. Uh, I'll meet a lot of people there too, but it's just that that personal contact. And there's always a story that comes out of it. There's always meeting someone there that leaves a lasting impression on me that, uh, you know, it just reminds me I've, I've had a very special opportunity to uh, to do what I love. Well, there's nothing like doing what you love and there's nothing like hanging out with farmers. And I think they're the salt of the earth. And you and I have both met some amazing farmers ar- across the years. So who is someone that really stands out to you in agriculture, a farmer, a producer? Who's someone that is one of those people that you just really enjoy talking with? Oh, my goodness. I, I'd be guilty of uh, process of elimination here. I mean, there, there are so many that I talk to on a weekly basis that I really, really consider friends. And, and some of those folks are getting away from me. About five mm-hmm. years ago, I lost a, a tremendous farmer friend who was not just a very good farmer, a very wise farmer, but a, an amazing mentor. 
And it was a reminder that mentors can come from any walk in life, Conrad. You, mm-hmm. you know that very well. We, we generally think, I, I believe, of mentors in our own profession, and there have been those, to be sure. My longtime friend, Orion Samuelson, whom I've worked with, who just retired at the end of last year after six, 60 years on the radio at WGN. Wow. One station, 60 years wow. at one station. What and, a legacy. Uh, oh, absolutely. And and. He taught me such a great work ethic, as did my father, you know, growing up on the farm. But there was this farmer in central Illinois who was so wise and imparted so much knowledge, Darius Harms, and he was instrumental in helping start that vintage farm equipment show, The Half Century of Progress, and uh, just so many things that he imparted to me. But guess what? There are probably 100 or 150 other people who would say the same thing about Darius. His passing mm-hmm. left a wide, wide swath in our lives because he had been such a, such an important force, uh, not not just giving you wisdom, but just being there as a sounding board, being there, reaching out and calling you when you least expected it, but when you really needed it. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the message or the story or, or the uh, the thing that Americans need to know about American agriculture? Well, there are so many, and there are so many misconceptions, as you know. Uh, That fact that more people want to know more about their food is a good news, bad news story. I mean, the good news is farmers need them to know more about their food. The bad news is sometimes there are those misconceptions that are fostered by people pushing a book, people pushing a video, people who have some kind of a vested interest, and it may not be a story that they're telling that is based in fact. And uh, farmers work very hard to produce an abundant product that is reasonably priced, that is as safe as it can possibly be, that is the finest product produced in the world. As a matter of fact, we have great food safety standards. I think sometimes we, sometimes folks in agriculture complain a little bit about all of these regulations. And, and to be sure, many of our businesses and industries have some tough regulations. We worry about onerous regulations that can hamstring our farmers and make us uncompetitive with other nations in a very competitive climate now. But the reality is, looking at it as a consumer of our food, regulations on the whole have served us pretty well over the years because of all of those things that I mentioned in terms of our food supply. And farmers work very hard to give us that. Uh, They, at times, are compensated well. At times, they can barely eke out a living. There's so much variability, so many peaks and troughs to their business making it difficult to do what they do. But it's it's more than a, a livelihood. It's a lifestyle, as you realize that, as you found, I'm sure, as you've gone out on farms, that uh, there's something really cherished about that life out on the countryside. And they really want to care for the land. They're bringing up their family there. Uh, you know, they, they don't want to abuse the land, and they certainly don't want to pollute the water. So they're doing the best they can to care for our natural resources. One thing you'll see when you get a pickup truck and ride around with a farmer, and and so many times, as I've done this over the years, the producer will point to something, some improvement that he or she made in this particular area of riding with a, a woman farmer down in Alabama. She was so proud of pointing to some of the things that they had done to make that land even more productive. A farmer friend of mine in Indiana said, yeah, we put in this conservation structure. It was a cost share arrangement with the Department of Agriculture because it improves the land, improves our resources in the area. But we pointed up some money too. So there's a lot of pride in in what is done out there in the countryside to improve the land. 
I totally agree. And I, I've often said that, you know, farmers are, I mean, and the land is what they depend on for their, their livelihood. And so there's no better caretakers. Obviously, there's bad players in every industry, including every the farming industry. industry. Even in broadcasting. I don't know, it's hard <laughs> to imagine. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, the farmers who are really serious about this business will be the first to tell you the bad actors need to go. You know, if there's somebody who is not caring for their livestock well, if they're abusing the animals, get them out of there. Mm. So, so who are some of the people, and you've mentioned, you know, one or two of these, who are some of the people who have most influenced you and moved you towards success? Oh, that's an interesting question. My father, first and foremost, uh, you know, I did a post on Father's Day asking folks uh, what attributes they gleaned from their father. And I'm kicking myself because I didn't ask the question back on Mother's Day, but I pledge to do it Mother's <laughs> Day of next year. And you think about so many things that I think many of us learned from our fathers. Some learned a sense of humor. Some, mm-hmm. I, I've got a buddy uh, that lived uh, near me. He was a, a neighbor in the western suburbs of Chicago. He learned a great salesmanship from mm-hmm. his father, who was a very successful salesman. Uh, frugal nature. Some benefited simply because there were assets that were transferred from one generation to another. And I was thinking about this. And after the fact, I really thought about one thing I learned from dad was generosity. Mm. He was a very generous man in a very quiet way. He would sneak around and, and <laughs> give people things. He, he thought he was sneaking around and, and you know, somebody would, would catch him now and then. But I remember him helping people in the community who really needed a helping hand. A guy who had no heat in his house. Uh, mm. One Christmas we went in there. Dad got a heater at the. He bought at the co-op. And we went in there and we ran a long extension cord over from the church so that this guy could have heat in his house for mm. what turned out to be his last Christmas. But that kind of action by my father, and I'm sure you you can mm. think too, also Conrad, of things yeah. that you learned from your dad. Very simple things, but have contributed mightily to your life. Absolutely. And, and one of those things is, is, are the dad jokes that my kids laugh at hysterically when dad says them, but when I say them, they, their their eyes roll. (laughs) (laughs) I get that. I understand that. I've seen that eye roll many times uh, from our daughters and now granddaughters. Right. So, so what's a piece of advice that you've been given that helped guide you? Well, I, yeah, which, which piece of advice, one that I have shared on, on many occasions, especially with young people, considering their career options, is to keep your options open. I mean, just don't close any doors. You might be surprised at, at what comes along. And I'm, I'm a good example of that. I wanted to be a broadcaster. I never, ever dreamt of being a farm broadcaster. I didn't mm-hmm. realize you could do this successfully, uh, do it well in a big city of America, have an impact on other lives, uh, the way I like to think maybe we've had at some time, uh, some positive impact out there. So keep your options open. You just never know what career path might open. And you say, well, wait a minute, let me, let me try this after all. I, I think uh, you plan for a career. You, you certainly pursue the education that you need. You get as much experience as you possibly can. Uh, demonstrate, by all means, I tell a young person, demonstrate interest, enthusiasm, reliability, be there early, stay there late, simply because other people don't. Right. You know, really, in this day and age, that person, that young person who shows up and says, what can I do? Show me what to do. I, I want to help you. And then they, they, 
They want to stay until the lights are turned out. Find me that young person. It's very rare. And, and I guess I hearken back a little bit to my college years. I, I ran that commercial station in Lafayette, Indiana, WASK, on Saturday and Sunday nights. Saturday nights, when everybody was partying across the river on campus, I was out there running Casey Kasem's American Top 40 as we're counting down the 40 top hits in the USA. And after I would shut that station down, we signed off at midnight. I'd shut the AM down and the FM transmitter, take it off the air. The building was silent. I would wander around over the next 40 to 45 minutes, looking at desks, being nosy, putting everything back where it belonged, but I wanted to see what the program director was working on. What is this guy who's being paid as a program director or a manager for the radio station or a news director, what are they handling? What are they doing? What's this job really like? I know what it's like on the air, but what are they doing behind the scenes? I couldn't get enough of a radio station back in the day. I love being in it. I still do. I love sneaking in one, especially where there's a guy still on the air. Mm-hmm. So you've been honored with a ton of awards over your career. And I kind of want to know, how do you stay fresh? How do you, you know, stay fresh in your approach and telling a story? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a little tougher, I suppose, as you get older, uh, staying fresh. Yeah, but the enthusiasm I derive is by staying in contact with farmers and other listeners. And uh, just to hear, you know, I, I'll be honest with you, I struggle to keep up with the technology today mm-hmm. as much as I used to as a younger man. I laugh about it. I was the guy who would hang out of the Radio Shack store 40 years ago waiting for the for the new technology, the Trash 80 when it came out. I had that first monochrome laptop computer. Linda, my wife, and I put in names of uh, kids, you know, when our, our children were born. Oh, we're going to name her. I want to name her Becky. No, I, we had a Becky that was no good. That was, you know, I had some of uh, Those used acoustic couplers. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. No, no I don't you, know what that is. You would take the handset of your telephone. You know what that is? Oh, yeah. yeah I know what that is. <laughs> and you had these cups. Oh, yeah. Fit, you, you connect, fit, connect, yes. connect it to the phone. And right. it was wired into the computer and... It caught the computer signal. The, the you had a baud rate that was maybe twelve thousand five hundred. It was it was terrible. It was so slow. But you could connect with a computer somewhere and get a download of news or whatever. The early very days slow. of the internet. I'm sorry, sir. It was the very early days of the internet. Yes, yes, and even prior to the internet, actually, you know, you would tie you could tie into the computer at work. Mm-hmm. So. When you have a, a story, how do you know that you have a, a great story or versus a good story? Well, there's so many things that you consider. Obviously, first and foremost, I think over my career, I've thought about it. Is it a pocketbook issue to farmers? Is this something that's going to make a difference to their bottom line? Is this going to perhaps enrich their income, help them out, give them a better chance of making a profit of their business? Is it a potential regulation that's going to cost them down the road? How are they going to deal with this? Um, is it a story that helps them understand, you know, other farmers understand these opportunities that are out there? I mean, maybe they didn't think about what this guy is doing out in Kansas. Maybe they could implement it on their farm. Uh, that, that's something else you know, I've looked at closely over the years, too. We cover markets. We cover weather. The same things that, you know, really, really mattered to the farmers 40 years ago. We still do it in a fashion on our television show, This Week in Agribusiness, that Orion and I have had. Uh, We're in our 16th season now of that television show, working in cooperation with Farm Progress. And Mm -hmm. uh, 
There, the sales agent, our program is also carried on all of the Farm Progress Company websites, such as mm -hmm. Farm Futures, such as uh, Feedstuffs 365, Prairie Farmer, Wallace's Farmer, Michigan Farmer, and the list goes on. So what have or how have challenges in your life shaped who you've become? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, you think back to some of those things that uh, landed in your lap and you look after the fact on down the road and you realize, yeah, there was a reason uh, for, for this. And uh, some of those things, I think, increase your sensitivity to, to challenges that other people go through and you realize, you know what, I'm not the only one to to have run into this obstacle. I, I have a far greater appreciation for Alzheimer's because my mother went through that. I came down mm -hmm. home one Christmas, you know, 300 miles, uh, drove down at Christmas and there were, there were Christmas cards in the refrigerator and uh, there were uh, uh, appliances not plugged in right, one plug mm -hmm. hanging out in, into the outlet. I mean, it was look, I was looking at this thinking it's a, it's a fire hazard. And, uh, you know, uh, we realized, you know, I realized that I had to do something. Dad said, oh, we'll tough it out. but I said, no, we've, we've got to deal with this, Dad. Uh, but, but also the lesson from that experience, Conrad, is that in, in any tough situation like that, there are still those, those lighter moments. And, and one of those was, my mom was pretty tough. If I, could, I don't know if I can find it or not. Down in here somewhere. Oh, yeah, here it is. When, when mom passed away, I went through her nightstand and I found this. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I didn't think she was uh, that tough, but she had a switchblade. For the listener on the audio side, it, it's a switchblade. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And, uh, but, but, and so she, she, could, uh, she could really lay it on when she wanted to. But, you know, down in there was a heart of gold. In her last few months, I was visiting her in the nursing home, and she hadn't spoken a word for probably uh, six weeks or so after falling. And her roommate... Uh, while I was there, it was very loud. I was rubbing mom's back and her roommate was watching and her roommate would cry out, hey, come over here and give me some of that sugar. Come here. I want some of that. <laughs> and I'm rubbing mom's back and, and I, did, I didn't say anything. And I was just listening. And of course, the lady's voice was going down the hallway of the nursing home. <laughs> Finally, my mother looked over and in the most succinct sentence, so carefully enunciated I'd ever heard from her. She said, would you please shut up? <laughs> those, were, those were the last words I heard my mom speak. But wow. it was one of those moments it just, you know, it was one of those things you needed at the time. But mm -hmm. I think, you know, we, we realize when we, we uh, encounter those obstacles in life, whatever they may be, that there are so many other people facing challenges greater than ours. And it makes us really appreciative. And uh, I think it makes us also a little more willing to reach out at a time and say, you know, can I be helpful? Uh, if you need me, call me anytime. You know, I, I often tell good friends of mine, hey, we're always open. We never close. That that, that phone is on and it's on the nightstand and uh, use it. I'm usually up at three o'clock in the morning, put together some programming for the next morning. Call me if you need me. And I mean that when I say that to my good friends. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the challenges of today's modern world, we have, you know, have technology that's changing so quickly. How has technology changed or impacted what you do or oh, how you yes. do it? What a big difference it's made for me. I mean, I spent so much of my life under the concrete and steel of the Tribune Tower in Chicago. I was down there every morning at four o'clock in the morning 
there were days I didn't walk out of that building until about 4.15 in the afternoon. It was a, mm -hmm. a long broadcast day. We were on every hour with agriculture and business reports. We combined stock market coverage in about 1981, uh, coverage mm -hmm. of interest rates, which, which were uh, mm -hmm. extremely interesting back then. We had a, sure. a prime interest rate. I think it was about five days before Christmas in 1980, if I'm not mistaken, but the prime rate went to 21.5%. I remember having a mortgage on our home, our first home that Linda and I bought, the mortgage was 12.5%. And I thought, we got a wow. deal. So, <laughs> yeah, it was uh, a busy time. And, and my colleague Orion traveled and spoke extensively back in those days. Uh, he was a popular meeting speaker. Some of that I've done. Uh, I, I don't do I, I don't do much anymore. I'm pretty selective in that simply because there's so much time taken to travel, uh, to be at that meeting, to travel back. And uh, I'm in a little different mode in my life now, so I, mm -hmm. I don't do as much of that. But I was in that studio every day, in that radio studio on Michigan Avenue, where we had a showcase studio, the Goldfish Bowl, I think we called it when we first got there. But then the technology came along, and I'm going back now some 20 years ago, so that I could get an ISDN circuit, a phone circuit installed in my house, and that allowed me to sound like I was in that building downtown on Michigan Avenue. So I would go downtown early. I'd get down there about 3.45, 4 o'clock in the morning, but I'm going to be back home by about 9.30, and I could do the reports the rest of the day from my home studio. So it probably added years to my life, that technology. I always wanted to shake hands with the guy who invented the ISDN <laughs> circuit because he enriched my life uh, the later years, probably allowing me to live a little bit longer, allowing me to get to some of those board meetings of the Lyle Woodridge Fire District that I wouldn't have been able mm -hmm. to attend otherwise. Mm -hmm. Sure. So uh, I'd like to ask uh, all my guests, you know, I'm, I've, you produce documentary films, and when you're making a film, you write a log line. And I'm guessing you know what a log line is. It's that sentence that describes the movie. So when the movie about your life is made, what will the log line be? Yeah. You know, this is the second time I've been asked this question in an interview in probably the last 45 days. And, <laughs> and I've not, not had a, I didn't have a good answer then, and I'm not sure I do now. I just hope, I guess, that it, at the end of the day, I will have, uh, they'll say about me that, yeah, you know, the guy made a difference. Uh, the, the guy was pleasant to be around. Uh, uh, he was encouraging, um, maybe a little bit inspiring at times. You know, mm. I guess that, that's, that's what I hope when the epitaph goes on, <laughs> when, when my wife buries a couple of those old tractors out there and, 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 and puts it out there on the hump, you know, that the guy made a difference uh, somewhere along the way and, uh, and was an all right guy to be around. I, I hope it says something about being a fairly good dad and, and a pretty good granddad, too, because those are important roles to me now. Sure. So who's someone that you haven't interviewed that you wish you could have? Oh, that's a great question. Um, Oh my goodness, uh, boy! You know that's a that is a very tough question. I, I don't have I don't have many heroes anymore. I, I I was just talking about this with a barber yesterday, Conrad. Uh, he was uh, we were talking about veterans, and I said, you know, I I'm at that stage of my life where I, I, I don't have many heroes, but guys who went to Vietnam, and and there were women too, of course, in that Vietnam era. But those were the soldiers of my era when I was in mm -hmm. high school and college. And I, I get the chance to be around some of those folks yet today. I'll have breakfast now and then 
with some guys. I, I live in an area where there are quite a few military veterans, and uh, many of them served in that era. And I just, I just have utmost respect for them. And I try, I never record them, but I try to draw the story out of them. And you have to work at it. <laughs> you know, as a, sure. as a great interviewer yourself, there are times you really have to prime the pump and you have to keep coming back, mm-hmm. you know, pushing that handle. And then you realize, oh my goodness, what these guys went through in 1968 or 69, when they got on that big plane and went across to Southeast Asia and how difficult and challenging that fighting was. Well, guess what? We had veterans that went through the same thing in South Korea, Iraq, and Afghanistan. They still live with those challenges today of post-traumatic stress disorder and those mm-hmm. uh, military veterans, not unlike, of course, as you know so well, the folks in emergency medical services. Right. So I, I, I don't know. I, I, don't, there's, I don't know of a living individual <laughs> right off the top <laughs> of my mind. I'm not starstruck. Yeah. I, I, I don't get too excited about the Hollywood crowd. I, I, I you know, remember, I'm the same way. I remember, I've, I remember I've been around. I really, I really respected politicians at one time, and I shouldn't say that I don't today. It's just that it's it's harder to get excited about it. Maybe I was place. naive as a young man. <laughs> you know, I kind of feel the same way just about celebrities in general. They put their pants on just like I do. Yeah. And uh, they have problems just like the rest of us. This, you know, sometimes more expensive problems. But, uh, I, but you I will, know, I, I, I will say that when I hear of an athlete or an entertainer who spends their time doing something good. Right. Like, uh, you know, going into a neonatal unit in a hospital where there are sick kids something like that, you know, where they're spending their time doing that, or they, they donate money to a hospital, you know, that really makes a difference. You know, then you think, ah, there's somebody worthy of admiration. There's somebody I'd like to meet and, and yeah, interview. Uh, So, you know, there's, there's some athletes that fall into that category. Drew Brees, for example, Mm -hmm. I'd like to interview Drew Brees. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, the fact that we shared the same alma mater, I think that had something to do with it. But when you see someone like that who can reinvigorate a community and continues to give and give and give, that's a special person. So what's the next big thing for you? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, now, there's, there's another tough question. Boy, you, you're a tough interviewer. I don't know that I've uh, crossed paths with anybody like you in a while, Conrad. <laughs> you really get down to the, uh, the nitty gritty. The next big thing uh, well, you know, we've got this busy summer, the Farm Progress Show and the Half Century, and those those are the big events looming out there. Um, I'm finding that, you know, I have, have a few more physical challenges at the age of 68. I've got knees that are a little bit tighter and and uh, ankles that are uh, a little tighter, my wrists, and so I'm, I'm spending a little more time looking after myself, trying to spend a little more time on a bicycle. I put my Big old behind on a bicycle. Nothing sophisticated now. Uh, mm-hmm. Serious bikers are going to laugh at this because I, <laughs> I, I I go to Walmart or Target and buy a $275. This one I think was $400 that I bought recently. $400 for a bicycle. But I put my butt on it and I just pedal. I go 14 miles or so. There's a trail that I ride uh, west of Chicago. That's crushed rock. And uh, 25 miles from the Willis Tower, and you can imagine you're way out in the middle of nowhere. There's a trail I ride about eight miles southeast of the North Carolina Capitol building that's paved. The difference is the size of the snakes. They're, they're, they're like shoestrings <laughs> west of Chicago. Sometimes it's like going over a fire hose when you go over a snake on the trail here in North Carolina. 
<laughs> Very good. Well, you'll have to, uh, I'll think about you while I'm riding next year. I'm planning a cross country trip. Are you really? Or- Maryland. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually going to be raising money for first responders. Oh, and, oh uh, my goodness. Tied into the movie I'm working on, and and hopefully by then we'll be done. We'll be kind of rolling out across the country. And my oh, goal my. is to stay at firehouses across the country. And, that uh, is so great. And you you know what would be cool if if you can link, and obviously you will have to link with some volunteer fire departments as you cross absolutely. America. Absolutely. And many of yeah. those folks are going to be farmers, grain elevator yeah. operators, owners of the fertilizer plant, preachers, teachers. You know, you know what. Of the volunteer Absolutely. service is like that is so that is so cool. Well, oh, uh, that's... now, now you, you just noticed you asked me what what the next big thing is. This lights my fire. I want to I want to do some coverage of the of the video guy going across America. Oh, well, please do. We look forward. We're actually going to launch a YouTube channel to kind of uh, build up the suspense for the for the trip and to build an audience. And we're going to be looking for a sponsor to help cover that, you know, our expenses. And but then we're going to you know really kind of pass the boot and raise money for organizations that help first responders deal with post-traumatic stress. And that's kind of my goal as the as the, the back end of my film. And uh, yeah, it's just going to be something that I look, I've, I've, I've wanted to do this for I guess 20 years. And I got inspired by this guy from Colorado who who rides his bike everywhere. And so I was like, you know what? Now's the time. And so uh, I'm planning on riding with a friend. So I'm really looking forward to that. So what's what's the best way for someone to contact you if they are interested in uh, following you or you know, working yeah. you know, people can find you? Yeah, you bet. The best uh, email address is max at agbizweek.com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I tweet often and retweet. I don't know, there are 20,000 or so folks, I guess, that follow me there. Um, I probably look for, for better guidance and better knowledge than I give them, but I've been, I've been tweeting for a while and sometimes I'll put highlights of, uh, of our show and what I'm up to on there and uh, pose a question like I did for Father's Day. I'm on LinkedIn also and, uh, I have a personal Facebook page. I, I think I've maxed out on that at, at 5,000, but we, I have a Max Armstrong Tractor Stuff Facebook page too that I actively uh, post on as well. So, uh, and yeah, I want to ask you about tractor. Yeah, I want to ask you about the tractor thing. I know you you either collect tractors or you have a real interest in in vintage tractors. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, when my folks had the sale of the equipment on their farm in Indiana in 1995, I went in and bought the tractor that I grew up driving. An international Harvester mm-hmm. made in 1953. They took delivery of that tractor six months after they took delivery of me. It arrived at a dealership in Princeton, Indiana, about two blocks from the hospital where I had been born earlier that year. So that tractor and I go way back. And I was so glad that I was smart enough to be the successful bidder because that tractor has taken me a lot of places and allowed us to meet a lot of interesting people. I even had it in downtown Chicago for a photo shoot. Wow. Uh, Several years ago, I drove it across the Michigan Avenue Bridge on a Sunday morning with some help from some off-duty police officers. And uh, we did that for the old classic tractor calendar. Back in the day, John Harvey, who worked with DuPont in uh, in Wilmington, Delaware, uh, was uh, the guy who put that great calendar together and did the videos. And they were really quite nice. The calendar was was well produced. And he, he asked me to, to have my tractor on there. And I said, well, all of these tractors are photographed out on farms where they belong. But I said, International Harvester 
was headquartered on Michigan Avenue in Chicago for about 80 years at uh, different locations. And I said, that's where I work. Why don't we bring it downtown? So I worked with a couple of uh, off-duty officers to do that early on a Sunday morning. We got some great shots. Then I acquired a, a Super M with the help of the guys in the International Harvester Collectors Club. We had a Super M on the farm. Not this one, but it's one like it. Then uh, we had an old 560, an International 560 made in 1961. Hmm. And my dad let that go to a neighbor. It was sold in that same auction when I bought the, the Super H. And then a few years later, the neighbor called and said, hey, Max, we're done with your dad's tractor. It's out here in the field. Come and get it. Click. <laughs> so <laughs> I got a couple of local guys, uh, great guys uh, from the church there who went out with me. And we took some gasoline. We took some water, took a battery, and the doggone thing started up. And an FFA chapter restored that. And so that mm. 560 takes me along in some tractor rides every year. And then I have a 404, also made by International. All four are International Harvester Tractors. The 404 is in North Carolina, and the other three are in Illinois now. Yeah, I grew up on a Super C. Uh, we had, my grandfather had a Super C. I spent many hours cultivating corn on that thing. And we also, they, he also had a 560. He had a 460, a 560, and a 966. So oh, he had some good firepower with. there. Yeah, yeah back yeah. in the day in the day. Well, Max, it's been a real, a real pleasure having you on the show. And thank you for taking time to talk to me on the My Story podcast. And I uh, really appreciate that. We'll uh, be sure to link uh, all your, your contact in the show notes. And uh, so I just really appreciate what you have done for, for me and for agriculture as a whole and wish you much success in uh, your final run as you uh, look at, at the future. Well, thank you, sir. Appreciate it so much. Thank you for what you've done for the folks in the fire service and what you will do in the months ahead. As you can tell, that's a passion for me. I have such a high regard for those folks who, who do what they do. You know, the hands that reach into the automobile in your time of need or those feet coming up the sidewalk. Uh, you know, I, I didn't mention this, Conrad, but one of the greatest privileges of, of my adult life, I, I got to serve as MC for the Medal of Honor program of the Illinois Fire Marshal's Office. It was held every May, honoring those who had died in the line of duty and also paying tribute to those who had performed acts of heroism. And it was the most amazing thing. You'd have these fire departments from all 102 counties of Illinois. And, and out of the audience, there would be the, the Union firefighters from Chicago who had come down on a bus, sitting right next to the volunteers from Bushnell or, or Bone Gap, you know, the flames were just as hot out of those rural volunteer departments as they were for the, the guys of the big cities. But it was my job to bring that story to life. And, and, and you can appreciate this. The official reports that were written up after an incident grossly understated the drama of, of what took place on the fire scene. And I would get the actual official report that would show engines 5719 responded along with Ladder two, five, rescue nine. And, uh, you know, they, they, what you didn't realize unless you went into the tale and did some research was the fact that this was two o'clock in the morning. The temperature in Chicago, as the firefighter was bringing that baby out onto the ladder, the temperature was 20 below. The wind chill factor was 45 below. This it was an act of heroism. I mean, and, and yet it was, the, the report 
made it so matter of fact. So my job, and, and I would spend several nights ahead of this event every year, going through the reports, doing some research to see what the, the temperature was at Midway Airport near that incident scene, and to try to bring this to life. And it was just one of the uh, one of the most memorable things that I've had the opportunity to do with, with that room full of firefighters and families there to pay tribute. And, and some, you know, were there after they had lost a loved one. And, uh, and one lady came up to me after we completed the program one day and she said, uh, my husband was a big fan. Uh, he listened to you a lot. That was tough. Yeah. 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 Those are really meaningful moments when you can you know, really connect with, these heroes, these everyday heroes. Oh, that, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, 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 use, I misused the phrase earlier. I said I have few heroes in my life. Well, there happen to be a lot of them involved in the emergency services, and that includes uh, police officers, too. I agree. You know, I live in Emmitsburg, Maryland, where we have the National Fallen Firefighter Memorial. That's here. right. And uh, it's really, it, you, you go over there and you look at all those names of, fall, of, of the fallen, and you just realize that the, you know, here are men and women who, gave it all, you know, put it all on the line and they, they lost their life, you know, and especially what is moving, most moving for me is the nine 11 tribute. And right. interesting, interesting little, uh, little anecdote here. I live on my street. My house number is, is three, four, three. And anyone in the fire service probably knows that number. That's how many firefighters lost their lives yeah. in New York City on 9-11. Right. And it's, I don't know why I have this house number, but it, it's just the, there's a connection, you know, and I feel that I have a connection with that event through that house number. And, I, you know, every time I go over there across the street from my house and I look at those names, you know, mm. it's just amazing, uh, you know, tribute to these men and women who, who gave it all, who sacrificed it all. And, you know, as I'm working on this new documentary, I realized that there are many who are still living who have sacrificed it all. Absolutely. You know, and there, there are even many who are struggling, you know, with all the traumas that they carry. And uh, I have the yeah. privilege of telling that story. And sometimes those are unhappy stories, uh, the way they turn out. It's, it's a load, it's a burden, and uh, they deal with it for years and years and years and, and uh, struggle and and finally, at the end of the day, they, they just can't take it anymore. And it's, yeah. it's, I think it's frustrating to those of us they leave behind because we wish we had seen something. We wish we had said something. We wish we could have done something. And in many instances, maybe there wasn't any answer. We, we tried. And yet, uh, you know, I, we did a series on our television show this spring uh, talking about mental health of farmers. And a, and a longtime friend of mine, I've known the guy for 40 years, uh, called me up and he said, he said, thanks, man. He said, I had dealt with post-traumatic stress disorder as a military veteran for all of these mm -hmm. years and finally sought help this spring. He said, the most mm -hmm. important message you can share out there is you can get help in many instances. Just don't delay that call. Make that call. He said, I put it off for four decades. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, in the course of my work over the past year and a half, you know, we're, we're finding those agencies and those people that really have a passion for helping first responders and and are you know are are really you know making it easier for first responders to raise their hand and ask for help and we have to break that stigma yeah uh, you know. and, and you know that as we said it can linger for so many months and years afterward you know there's there's that outreach right after a tough call mm -hmm. 
you know, when everybody comes back to the station and, and we get the chaplain, you know, coming in for the, the critical uh, debriefing, incident debriefing. And, and then, you know, uh, firefighters are supposed to be tough. They're supposed to just internalize that and carry on and handle the rest of the calls. But there are some that are so bad that they just don't ever leave you. Yeah. Yeah. And we're, and we're telling that story. So looking forward to getting this film done. And It's important work and, you're doing. Well, thank you so much. And it's important work you're doing because you're spreading the, the word and the information about agriculture across our nation. So thank you. You know what? We have filmed almost a doggone hour here. This is an hour that, that these folks will never get back again. <laughs> well, fortunately for me, I have, I've had a blessed hour and I've had... I have too, sir. Thank you. Having you Just here. so you know. Thank you very much. You made my day. Thank you. My privilege, Conrad. Take care of yourself. Max, thank you for sharing your story and for being a voice for the American farmer over all these years. I've really enjoyed our conversation and I hope that you continue to have amazing success in your broadcasting career. Thanks for listening to the show today. And if you enjoy what you hear, please leave a review and a rating. This lets me know what you like and how I can improve the show. And please share this episode with a friend or a colleague. The music on today's show is from my friend, Drew Davidson. You can get all of his music on iTunes or Spotify or at drewdavidson.com. Finally, be sure to smash that subscribe button so you won't miss an episode. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again next time on the My Story Podcast.